The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! Everybody and welcome back to Episode Zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Ah! Oh, Rocky! You know, I tried to find like a proper clean clip of that to use instead of the Wilhelm scream, and it uh-huh. just doesn't quite. There's just too much going on in the soundtrack; it doesn't like, yeah, lift. Yeah. So I just decided we'll make the Wilhelm scream the thing, <laughs> okay. regardless of whatever there's movie no, franchise we do. There's no actual Wilhelm scream in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. No, but would it surprise you if there was? Uh, well, it would, because I've seen the movie so many times. Well, you know what I mean, though. <laughs> one, had, one had passed by my notice. I think the Wilhelm scream is kind of indicative, though, of, like, mm. surprising influence from the past. I and how it so. has shown up in so many different films, even though, you know, most people couldn't even name the movie it's from. Mm. So, uh, anyway, we'll just we'll just let it be a little, our little mascot. Okay. Yeah. We'll just <laughs> have, fa- like, a... In fact, here it is. <laughs> Thank you, Wilhelm. Okay. Well, I guess we'll... To make a note to put that in twice. <laughs> Thanks, Whitney. You're quite welcome. Anyway, welcome back. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, I'm really glad that we're doing this project. I'm happy that we're covering the prehistory of the Rocky Horror Picture Show because uh, Fox owned two major cult hits in the mid to late 70s, and we already covered one of them. <laughs> uh, That's right. I really wasn't thinking about that. We didn't, like, intend to do... Two Fox movies in a row, but it from, was a big yeah, deal from, from within two years of one another. Yeah, that was a, that was uh, a coincidence. It also means funny. Disney owns both of those things. Yeah. Technically, Doctor Frankenfurter is a Disney princess. That's so weird. They need to start putting Doctor Frank on all of the Disney princess merch. And Disney, to their credit, they know that Rocky Horror is sacred to a lot of people because when Disney took over the Fox library, mm-hmm. there's a lot of articles about this. Disney like started denying access to films from the Fox library the way that Disney denies access to their own films. You can't just like for if you're if you own a small movie theater, you yeah. can't book Beauty and the Beast for a midnight show. Disney doesn't let their stuff out in in frivolous manners like that. They only let it go if they're properly re-releasing it in theaters across the country exactly. or if there's like a major and, uh, film festival, maybe they'll let it slide. But And a lot of the Fox films were difficult enough to get as is. Yeah. A lot of those films were available through a rental house called Criterion, which has nothing to do with the Criterion collection. It just That's confusing. It just did another company that has the same name. Yeah. And they uh, were always difficult to deal with because they required such a high uh, take back, mm. like a, a big percentage of ticket sales. Uh, so a lot of studio, a lot of theaters excuse me a lot of repertory theaters didn't want to book stuff through criterion yeah and that was it was kind of a pain and now it's even more of a pain mm-hmm. that disney has decided to put their in the vault thinking over big films like say alien mm-hmm. or um other die hard big, yeah these die are movies hard, that were on. on the the midnight circuit for mm-hmm. a long time and my my point was I, I wasn't shocked when disney did that it's disappointing 
kind, of, kind of predictable, unfortunately. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but they did not have that policy with Rocky Horror. No. They flat no. out said, we're putting everything in the vault. It's going to be really hard to get all of these Fox movies again, except for Rocky Horror. Like, there would be rioting in the streets if we mm. took Rocky Horror out of, like, every weekend at movie theaters across the country. Right. Like, we but. we know people <laughs> would be furious. We have to let Rocky Horror be the exception. Mm. But why do we bring this up? Well, for one, it's kind of interesting. And mm. and for another, it, it illustrates just how sacred Rocky Horror is as a theatrical institution, mm. which is kind of interesting because Rocky Horror being extremely um, kinky... Uh, not to mince words, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, would not have been possible at a variety of points in film history. Mm. Wouldn't have been able to be released. People would have tried to shut it down. And, uh, and and there's no dang way Disney would ever produce anything like this under unless like it was a Miramax film back in that period when they owned Miramax. Yeah, but they would never do this today. Even no. if in its exact same form, they would never do it today. But it it hails from this extremely renegade mindset mm. of cinema and that brings us to the topic of discussion on today's episode zero in which we talk about the films that inspired rocky horror picture show uh we today are going to be talking about an incredibly important influential and really cool and super weird and <laughs> completely out there and offensive uh, a short film from filmmaker Kenneth Anger, uh, which has directly influenced filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, mm. uh, David Lynch, John Waters, um, uh, Gaspar Noe for sure. Yeah. Oh, uh, um, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah, yeah. They're they're. This film is everywhere yeah. in in uh, like in the minds of certain kind of edgy auteurs. And even if filmmakers aren't directly inspired by Scorpio Rising. There is a decent chance that pretty much every movie you've seen that came out like in from like the late 70s onward was indirectly inspired by and owes an incredible debt to Scorpio Rising. Now, we can't play a clip because there's no dialogue in Scorpio Rising. And in fact, the entire soundtrack is nothing but licensed music, which actually stood in the way of it getting distributed widely. Mm. Uh, it was all and it's often credited as being the very first film to have uh, a pop music soundtrack. Yeah. Of, uh, of pre-existing pop hits that were not written for the film. Or or re-recorded for the mm. film. Previously, until like the 60s, and even then it wasn't commonplace until like the 70s when people like Martin Scorsese popularized it. Mm. Uh, the majority of movies had, you know, orchestral music as an incidental background. Uh, and if there were any pop songs, they were typically sung in the film mm. by characters in the film where they would go sometimes to a nightclub and someone would sing. Sometimes they would hire the band themselves to mm. perform their own music. Yeah. And, and you know, this, this was a big part of Hollywood. And, you know, we got some of the best songs ever written this way. But uh, people didn't just incidentally listen to songs that everybody knew unless maybe they were a pre-existing song that was now being sung again like mm. for example a lot of people think that the song white christmas sung by bing crosby comes from the movie white christmas it doesn't it actually mm. came from the movie holiday inn and was such an enormous success that they built a movie around that song so the song 
was a hit, everybody knew, but it was still part of the narrative. Mm. Scorpio Rising was a film that, whether or not it was officially the first, it is credited by a lot of filmmakers as inspiring them to include pop music on their soundtrack. Just incidentally, mm. much as the same way you would use an orchestral score by John Williams or Max Steiner or Hans Zimmer. Uh, and on top of that, Kenneth Anger didn't just use it because it was appropriate. He used it for ironic commentary on the yeah. action. Mm-hmm. And that was not something that had been done very much before. And uh, and the action is this weird sort of occult, quasi-religious uh, slash fetishization of motorcycle and biker culture as it has been interpreted through a queer lens of icons like uh, Marlon Brando in The Wild One and James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. And how... So much of, and we talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about the old dark house, about how a lot of queerness had to be sort of interpreted through mainstream popular culture. Yeah, the they time. couldn't directly address it. So, so um, if you saw the queer themes, you had yeah. to filter out all of the not queerness in order to yeah. get to the underlying exactly. and subtext. We talked about it in terms of a James Whale film, James Whale, a queer filmmaker who is not knowingly putting a lot of that stuff in there. Yeah. But a lot of what ended up influencing queer culture wasn't necessarily in there. It was reinterpreted to mean something a little bit different. And I think this film has a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. How we're taking these kind of, uh, you know, vaguely innocuous late 50s and early 60s pop hits like My Boyfriend's Back and giving them a little bit of a queer spin, declaring that they actually had a different meaning this whole time. Yeah. Uh, And Kenneth Anger is using all of his iconography, all of these, uh, for lack of a better term, biker leather daddies who are uh, getting dressed in a very sensual way. It really fetishizes the male bodies. There's close-ups of rears and guys buckling up their belts. The way that people like buckle their belts and Mm -hmm. then turn to the camera, there's a great uh, title sequence where Mm -hmm. uh, someone puts on a leather jacket with his back to the audience, and the leather jacket has the title of the film studded in rhinestones on Mm -hmm. the back, and then the camera pans down, and on the the bottom of the jacket, Mm -hmm. right by the guy's uh, rear end, Mm -hmm. is Kenneth, filmed by Kenneth Anger. Yeah. Uh, and you can see in this imagery, in the way that we're fetishizing not just people wearing the clothes, but people putting on the clothes and the exact camera angles, the waist-high camera angles, you can see that right there influencing things like the costume, like suiting up scenes in mm. Joel Schumacher's Batman movies and well, how and, those became more yeah. fetishized under that particular and, and, uh, uh, run on the franchise. Yeah, that kind of studded jacket became sort of a uh, common queer uniform mm-hmm. for a while. And in fact, to the point where Dr. Frankenfurter wears one in yeah. the movie and Eddie as well, the, the character played by meatloaf is definitely part of this like leather bound, uh, rough trade, uh, queer iconography. Yeah. Uh, and the the film continues apace. It's mostly just a series of images. There is a main character, but there's not a plot so much per yeah. se. So the main character is played by uh, Bruce Byron, uh, and uh, some of it is actually like I wouldn't say semi autobiographical, but they use like actual stuff he had like in his house, yeah, like posters he had on his wall and stuff. Um, and like the and it's about it's about half an hour long, mm. and the first 15, 20 minutes of it are just Bruce Byron and a couple of other uh, very muscular, very handsome young Mm. men 
who are assembling their motorcycles. For pretty much like from scratch. Yeah. They're just I, a big pile of parts at the beginning and they just assemble an entire yeah. motorcycle. And there's a, a definite pornographic angle to what they're doing with these motorcycles mm-hmm. and, and the twisting of lug nuts and the, the way the camera lingers over these motorcycle uh, parts. There's a song by little Peggy March that is, mm-hmm. I think it's the second played on the soundtrack called wind up doll mm-hmm. uh, in which we're hearing these lyrics about, you know, sort of comparing uh, uh, you know, life love to being wound up like a toy. Yeah. And there they are fastening lug nuts in a very, you know, macho, sensuous way. And we're also intercutting with toys of people on motorcycles. And we are creating a connection, not just between, uh, you know, machinery with like human biology, with the musculature of a mm. man, with, yeah. the, with the musculature of a motorcycle, but also with the idea that this is, the, the idea of setting up motorcycles as a really cool thing is ingrained within us from a very young age. You know, yeah, the, it's, well, this, it's iconography that is shown to people as motorcycles are cool, man. That, that the cool thing, like the guys who wear the leather jackets, the rebels, those guys are cool. Yeah. And they're typically presented, thanks to things like the Wild One, as these very macho characters, these very masculine characters. Uh, and assembling not just enjoy not just like being drawn to machines i have a five and a half year old son mm-hmm. he's drawn to cars that's oh, just yeah. like a little boy thing he's got this giant yeah, so tub of cars and he, has, he knows does. all of them and he's named he, them. he's got he has like hundred literally hundreds of hot wheels at this point so there's this uh you know american tradition of young boys being drawn to cars and that's brought into in the 1950s this love of the hot rods when car culture really started to explode in america mm. uh a ver- also a very traditionally masculine activity mm-hmm. um, throughout the 1950s and before. And you can see this in films like the Cellul- celluloid closet that sort of look at the way uh, gay characters were depicted in media. Gay men were typically depicted as very sissy characters. The term mm-hmm. sissy means gay. It's a slur. Uh, when I grew up, we used the word sissy to mean like just like a wimp. But right, it, but it the comes, reason is because that is yeah. an offensive term yeah, that I, got like sort of, you know, the, the definition kind of evolved or devolved, uh, yeah, I guess, over time. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in fact, there's the word sissy is used in The Wizard of Oz. It's one of the lyrics in uh, If I Only Had the Nerve. I, oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. It's sad. Believe me, Missy, when, yeah. when you're called to be a sissy. Yeah. And he even does like the limp wrist gesture. Mm-hmm. which is also like a, another sort of mm-hmm. gay slur. Um, yeah. And so what Scorpio Rising is doing is uh, kind of flying in the face of the way uh, gay characters were depicted in the media before, yeah. which were these kind of wimpy characters, these flouncing esthetes, uh, just, yeah, like these kind of very feminine men. Yeah. And, and you're saying incredibly that, wait, masculine this, but, men. Yeah, but yeah. gay culture is actually about a celebration of masculinity. So it's taking a lot of these very traditional trappings of masculine life, mm-hmm. motorcycles, leather, being tough, you know, a lot of this sort of like physical joshing and pointing out that, no, this this is actually very gay. Yeah. And this this kind of masculinity doesn't belong to you heteros. <laughs> In fact, it belongs to us. We're taking it all back. Yeah. No, and, and mm. definitely. And what's interesting is that Kenneth Anger 
you know, when Scorpio Rising begins, mm. it actually begins a little innocuously. It's just a guy working on a motorcycle. Uh-huh. And it, it isn't calling its shots in terms of uh, the queer uh, perspective that it has. Mm. It, do- it gradually builds on that over time until so at first it's sort of illuminating and in you know through the use of you know parallel editing and cutting mm. to different you know uh, posters and uh we're we're sort of creating a a connection mm-hmm. in the audience between macho biker culture and queerness mm. and then as the film progresses Kenneth Anger starts sort of ramping it up until mm. it becomes unmistakable until it literally erupts into a sex party yeah, yeah, and not just any sex party because we have we've a sex got, party with mustard. <laughs> a sex party. Okay, this is this because th- this is actually where it gets controversial in unexpected ways. Mm. Um, so we've gone through, uh, you know, Ricky Nelson singing "Fools Rush In." Uh, we've yeah, got Blue Velvet in there. Blue yeah. Velvet in there. This is actually a huge influence on Blue Velvet. D- David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Um, we've had my boyfriends back uh, around the time Elvis Presley starts singing "You're the Devil in Disguise." We start seeing more and more of Scorpio's uh, the the protagonist's apartment, um, and we start seeing that he's not exclusively into tame stuff. He's got a lot of skulls. Yeah, he's got like he's got uh, in addition to loving his motorcycle, he's actually got like a newspaper clipping of people who died in a motorcycle accident, and. Mm. That's going to escalate because after a few more songs, the the movie hits this huge crescendo where Scorpio and a whole bunch of the other guys that we've met and a whole bunch of people we've never met before all convene at sort of a Halloween party. Which which looks like it's taking place in a Catholic church. Um, yeah, yeah. Apparently they, they shot the party next to the Catholic church and they just sort of incorporated it like it's in the same place. Yeah, it's but there's a lot of Catholic iconography. There's like the Virgin Mary and yeah, you know, and and uh, Scorpio, Christ on the cross. And, uh, uh, Kenneth Anger actually starts intercutting with footage from a silent movie about Jesus. I don't know which one. Oh, um, yeah, I meant to look. It's not that intolerance, up, but, it's, but it's something. No, like that. no, no. But yeah, yeah, there's a silent movie of, and he he intercuts really quickly between mm. these uh, acts of. Uh, Aggressive sex and Jesus sort of giving these placid looks. And well, and meanwhile, little Peggy March is singing uh, the the hit song "I Will Follow Him," mm. which and I love that Scorpio Rising might have kind of influenced Sister Act because that's the <laughs> other movie that used "I Will Follow Him" to refer to him as Jesus. Mm. Love that. That's hilarious to me. That's totally awesome. Um, but yeah, so they they start all of these men convene and they start having a big biker party, which turns into a sex party, which turns into a torture party as mm. they like smear start smearing mustard on this one guy. Mm. And, and from my reading, is the idea is that that's like a, a biker gang initiation. Yeah. But they start like smearing mustard on his genitals, and which uh, is apparently would suck. I do not do that and, at home. And it, you blink and you miss it, but there is a scene where a guy is is whacking him in the face with his genitals. There's a couple. Yeah, there's, of, there, there's, there's a few nude shots they're really really short kind of thing and this film was taken to court and we'll get to that in a second that's really important by the way um, but yeah, we'll there, there's a few very, very brief flashes of male nudity in this. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth Anger said, what? It's only brief. It's happening during a sex party. Yeah. You take those out, not, it's still a sex party. And not just a sex party. A sex party that you're intercutting with Catholic imagery. Mm-hmm. Some footage of a silent film about Jesus Christ. While one of the characters is actually like sort of 
kind of possibly desecrating an altar yeah, and maybe yeah. and maybe urinating on it like that's certainly the indication that's like the body language even though we don't see it yeah it's 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 it's, uh, it's controversial and then on top of that mm-hmm. there's also nazi paraphernalia all of a sudden yeah uh well first of all the 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 desecration the the unholy imagery is meant to fly in the face of catholic guilt i think and religious mm-hmm. guilt in general uh, Christian guilt, you know, a lot of what was going on in, in America in the 1950s was incredibly conservative. And, you know, if, if you were gay, oh, no, you weren't gay. Stay in the closet. You know, this is the mm. 1950s. No one was out. It was a very repressive time. And here comes Kenneth Anger in the, the early 60s, uh, pretty much just saying, fuck that. Mm-hmm. You know what we're going to do with our gay sex? We're going to do it right in front of your religious iconography. It's a, a bold act of defiance. Mm-hmm. I think it does have a lot of, of significance and importance. It's not just desecration for the sake of it. It's not being randy for the, the sake of being randy. Uh, the Nazi imagery, I think, is meant to represent a sort of violent rebellion. How evil can we make this look how can we fly in the face of decency mm-hmm. it's it's not meant to sympathize with any kind of nazi ideology i think it's just using the iconography to show that well, we can, we're we're kind of using this to further desecrate decency well there's a couple of things with that mm-hmm. uh, one it's it's worth noting that kenneth anger uh, has you know sort of worked within uh, themes of not just uh, Catholicism and you know uh, mm. homosexuality, uh, but he's also dealt in a, with uh, throughout his career in themes of the occult, and he has actually expressed a lot of interest in the works of Aleister Crowley. Mm. Um, and so the idea of sort of not respecting organized religion is very much sort of built into mm. um, what seems to be his ethos as a as an artist. Um, regarding the the Nazi imagery, you know, on one hand. This isn't a movie that's purely celebrating these characters, and we'll talk a little right, bit about yeah. how it ends. Um, it's, it, it's, it doesn't seem to be especially judgmental. What it is interested in is revealing and peeling away layers of what we expect on the surface. So we're introduced to hunky men, you know, building their motorcycles. Seems pretty innocuous, seems like nothing we need to read into. There's certainly no subtext here. And then we pull off more subtext, and we pull off more subtext, and we strip away layers of what would, at the time, be considered, quote-unquote, decency, and then find less decency, Mm. and then less decency, and so on and so forth. I feel that by the time the Nazi paraphernalia, and there's like a checkerboards with swastikas, Mm. which, where do you even find that? Uh, Just a draw on yourself, I guess. Uh, but uh, I feel that one of the things that the movie is discussing, and the, one of the things the movie that is is encouraging us to think about, mm-hmm. is the iconography itself. Not necessarily what these icons always represent, because as Scorpio Rising shows, the iconography can sometimes be misleading and up to interpretation. Mm. I think what he's expressing here, and, you know, this is open to interpretation. It's an art house, you know, uh, experimental film. It's kind of shocking you out of complacency Mm. and daring you to make connections. So the connections that I made is Kenneth Anger is showing just how much power iconography can have and how that can be uh, positive, negative and neutral. Mm-hmm. And so when you start fetishizing, you know, 
you know, leather culture, when you start fetishizing motorcycle culture, when you start fetishizing Hollywood, when you start fetishizing religion, what happens when you start fetishizing something like Nazi culture? Mm. And the way that we fetishize these things and the way that we sort of start revering Mm -hmm. uh, false gods or actual gods, depending on how you look at it, um, I, I feel like he's saying there isn't much difference well, I, there might be there might yeah. be like a, there might be a, a moral difference, but the way that we treat our icons is that's, similar regardless. That that's fear, and and to to expound on that, I think he's he's not just sort of making a a comment on the concept of iconography. I think he's doing something a little bit more deliberate. Okay, in that he's drawing parallels between uh, sort of the Nazi imagery mm-hmm. and a lot of and the uh, and the Catholic imagery. He's trying to mm-hmm. explode a lot in so this he, film. They're, they're being used to. You're saying they're both like they both symbolize oppression. The, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, especially if if you're a gay man, yeah. all of those things represent oppression. Yeah, the Catholic Church and the Nazi Party are. Treat, treat homosexuals the same in Kenneth Anger's mind. That's what he's saying with this yeah. this short film. And he's trying to take masculinity back and desecrate the things that have previously been uh, very oppressive. Yeah. So, of course, there, there's going to be Nazi imagery. That's a shocking image. It's going to draw the eye. We know what it means. We all have a relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And we understand it to be evil. And that he's going to put... The Virgin Mary right next to that. Mm-hmm. He's making a comment less on Nazis and more, I think, on the Virgin Mary. Yeah. It's worth noting that when this movie was screened in L.A., mm. there was a protest. And here's... <laughs> From the Nazi party. <laughs> the Nazi party. The, yeah. the American Nazi party and the actual organization protested this film because it desecrated their flag. Good. Yes. <laughs> it's that, that Donald Glover gif. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> like, holy shit. Like, can you imagine, like, think, oh, my God. Like, oh, no, the, the Nazis are protesting. Well, Must be something good happened. What a badge of honor. Like, that's the, like, seriously, like, if you think about it, like, look, you got to look at who's protesting what sometimes. Yeah, well, and you, guys, you know? And, Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ indeed. And, <laughs> and, and, and of course, Touché. this is also a very fetishistic film. We, all, we talked about you know the, the leather and the machinery and how everything is incredibly sexualized. Kenneth Anger is also pointing out the, the weird fetishistic elements of things like Roman Catholic iconography mm-hmm. and Nazi iconography. You know, the, yeah. uh, there, I've seen plenty of films since Scorpio Rising that point out that the Nazi uniform was a very fetishistic thing. Yeah. Uh, if, if you can ever see... Got uh, sharp angles yeah, if and, you can bright, ever see, uh, and bright, shiny um, That clothing. film, the, the Night Porter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah that that direct, very directly addresses that. Yeah. How, how Nazi iconography and sexual fetish are a big part of it. Or um, if you want to go for the, like the less classy route, uh, Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. Yeah. Um, that's an ex- exploitation movie about... Nazi sex fetishes. Or you can look at something um, even more mainstream than that. You can look at something like Hellboy, where the original Hellboy, oh, one of the go, villains yeah. is like this Nazi who has mummified himself and now keeps himself alive in this like tight leather uniform with a really shiny black Darth Vader mask mm. and like super cool like swords. And he's evil, but 
you know, the, leather is stylish. Like it's like yeah, it's, it's a cool design. Yeah, yeah, but so it's a cool think, design for a villain, very yeah. specifically. And, and of uh, course, Darth Vader has shades of this as well. Yeah. And, and, and the jackbooted like villains in uh, you know Star Wars yeah, the Empire—they're so, very modeled after the Nazis. So, they're, yeah, they're all modeled after the Nazis, and I think this sort of idea of like leather fetish is drawing on those images and saying, "Wait a minute, the Nazis were maybe motivated by a lot of this." biker leather fetish mm-hmm. and we pull out of the the Nazi images and we see bikers going through their sort of weirdly torturous initiation rites, which are also very sexual. They're yeah. just these really rough orgies. And then we cut to Jesus and we think of like the stations of the cross mm-hmm. and since Kenneth Anger's Scorpio rising, I've also seen a lot of films, uh, John Waters in particular, trying to fetishize uh, Catholic imagery. Yeah. There's a, a scene in a John Waters movie where somebody is is uh, divine gets off with rosary beads, mm-hmm. and so in this one they're just sort of pointing out that this the Stations of the Cross this whipping and torturing and the way and this and Roman Catholics in particular focus on that part of mm-hmm. of the of Christ's story yeah, the, quote of the passion the passion yeah there's a whole movie about it <laughs> yeah it was it made like a and shit ton of money yeah yeah and uh, and that was just uh, two hours of jesus getting the ever-loving snot beaten out of him that's not true there was also a scene in which jesus invents a tall table that's right he invents bar stools yeah there's a scene in the, if you people forget <laughs> about this this is the most fascinating scene in the passion of the christ to me because how because every once in a while they'll do a flashback to just like to, to remind you wait he he did other things yeah he also did the die, sermon on the mount yeah. but they wanted to show one scene of him being a carpenter and i don't think this is in the bible it's where he's in this backyard and he's like making a table and you know his mother comes in and says jesus you've made this table too tall and he's like no mother for i will also make tall chairs and she's like oh jesus <laughs> you are not a great carpenter you should do something else with your life <laughs> hipster bars in the early 2000s will be very grateful to you it's, it's such a uh, weird like, yeah. inclusion in that film i don't get it at all but uh, this Roman Catholic obsession with the physical torture of Jesus Christ has a fetishistic element, doesn't it? This yeah. focusing, this fetishization of pain. Mm, that, that it is that, glorious. Yeah, that pain is glorious and that you can be sort of uh, uh, redeemed and washed through that kind of violence, through the violence that Jesus suffered. Mm-hmm. And how that's not too far removed from like a rough sex game with sex no, with there, safety words. No, no, there's definitely mm. like an, an element in there. Yeah. And of course this is the kind of movie where through the use of intercutting, through the use of connecting uh, disparate imagery through pop music mm. and therefore, and in the process making us re-examine what that pop music means. Yeah. Uh, uh, Scorpio rising is definitely uh, uh, inviting that. Scorpio Rising uh, concludes uh, with after the big uh, sex pargy, uh, sex pargy, pargy? party orgy, party orgy. It's a pargy. It's a pargy. <laughs> after this big pargy, uh-huh. um, uh, the movie actually settles down, and I guess after this, all those bikers, you know, did some actual like motorcycle racing, and then uh, then the implication is that Scorpio ends up dying in a motorcycle accident, mm. uh, and that's basically which is the end. leader of the pack, which is leader of the uh, pack. They, they don't play leader of the pack, but that's kind of what they we're don't thinking play, about. It feels like they play leader. Of nope, the pack, no, but they don't. It's actually not in there. It's so weird because it's basically <laughs> like you're right. The story mm. is basically leader of the pack. Maybe it was too on the nose, and he was trying to use songs that didn't yeah. necessarily play into. By the way, Kenneth Anger didn't ask for rights or anything. No, no, he, <laughs> he did. Just, did he? It's my understanding. Oh, that I he actually, he, just sort of used he actually, right. he actually. I he stand knew, corrected. It's my understanding, right. and and if anyone knows that this is not true, please correct us. I would love to know. 
But based on my research, it's my understanding that Kenneth Anger did, in fact, spend the majority of the film's budget securing the rights to this music so that it could be shown and it couldn't be pulled because oh. people saying, oh, you can't use Hit the Road Jack. Well, well, paint me red. Um, I uh, I had always assumed that it was difficult to find because of those music rights. I mean, it might be difficult mm. to distribute now mm. because uh, that doesn't. Say, it doesn't mean he had like the home video rights to it. I, I know that was the big issue with that film, Killer of Sheep. Yeah, they used some pop music on the soundtrack, and even though the film could be distributed, mm-hmm. a lot of the soundtrack couldn't be. That was true for the yeah. uh, animated movie Heavy Metal uh, as well for many many years. Same with uh, the TV series The State. They used yeah. a lot of uh, MTV hits, and if you watch it on home video, you'll realize that a lot of the pop hits were replaced by, like, generic rock. Yeah. Like, public domain This stuff. happens with a lot of TV. It's actually another reason why, um, like, because oftentimes people, before TV was, like, commonly released on home video, uh, they could secure the rights to play a song on TV pretty cheaply. But they didn't include home video rights in that agreement. And now everyone's like, oh, you want to release Ally McBeal on DVD? You use a shit ton of pop music in every single episode of that. Now you got to pay up. And they're like, oh, we can't afford that. So that's one of the reasons why, like, you'll see sometimes, um, like, a TV show comes out on DVD and, like, the opening credits music is different. Mm. They could not afford that song anymore. Um, So that might be why it's not available on home video, but it's my understanding that the rights were secured Mm. uh, for the theater. Um, The movie was taken to court on obscenity charges. Yep, because it's kinky and weird, and and it does have male nudity, and it's yep. about gay sex. And uh, this was a time when that was... wasn't when being gay wasn't necessarily legal everywhere mm. in America. Uh, it was a fucked up time, but in the end, the courts actually found in favor of Kenneth Anger because they couldn't prove that this film, this incredibly artistic, influential, significant, fascinating film. They couldn't prove that this film was pornography because it had artistic merit. And that was, uh, the the phrase was redeeming social importance. Yeah. That was the, there was this big fight, and I know all about this from Tom Lehrer, of all people. He wrote a song called Smut, was marching for the causes. Give me smut and nothing but, a dirty novel I can't shut. And, um... the whole deal with, uh, and you know, in the 1960s when there was this big wave of conservatism and, uh, and and censorship going on, especially as it was pertaining to pornography, photography was becoming a lot easier to uh, proliferate. Mm-hmm. And as such, nudity and pornography was becoming a lot easier to proliferate. Uh, courts started getting up in arms. That's where we got the famous phrase. I forgot the name of the judge who said, or it was the, the politician who said, like, what what is the difference between art with sex in it and pornography? And he said, I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. That's That was his only value judgment he could put on there. And yeah, so the courts were now being inundated with a lot of por- uh, obscenity cases because mm-hmm. there was so much of it now. And the only judgment they could come up with that would separate like smut, pornography, things that were just there to get off, and art that had pornographic elements was, does it have, quote, redeeming social importance? And Scorpio Rising had redeeming social importance. It kind of undeniably does. Yeah. And, and and frankly, that's not a great system, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it, it's, it's basing the law on this vague kind of value judgment. Mm-hmm. Well, the law around, around um, X-rated films for a long time was actually really weird. Like, for example... Uh, later on, when it was basically firmly, uh, you know, understood that X-rated films were allowed to exist and be distributed, mm-hmm. uh, that it was protected under First Amendment rights, it wasn't necessarily legal to make them mm-hmm. because that was sex work. 
That was having sex for money. Right. So you might not be allowed to make it, but once it's made, it's okay. Yeah. So there were all of these like weird rules around it, but the important thing is that Scorpio Rising and other films of its ilk, it wasn't the only one that was uh, brought into court and actually brought this issue to light, but this film and films like it made it possible to explore these issues, to explore sexuality, to explore queerness in increasingly mainstream films. Mm. And that led, you know, I, I would be surprised if the makers of the Rocky Horror Picture Show hadn't seen or at least heard of or understood what Scorpio Rising was. But well, it, it, you can definitely tell that there's a line hmm. what, from Scorpio Rising to Rocky Well, yeah, and, and what Scorpio Rising, we're talking about, like, fetishization of Nazi culture, fetishization of ca- Roman Catholic imagery. Mm-hmm. That almost seems kind of cliche now. Yeah. Like, if, if a, a film student were to do that today, you'd be saying, oh, you're just... What are you doing? Are you making are you making a parody of art film? Mm-hmm. It almost seems churlish it's, to make yeah. those connections now because they they almost seem obvious. Right. It wasn't obvious in 1964. There was a time when everything that we take for granted about art, cinema, what have you, hadn't been invented yet. Mm. And Scorpio Rising, whether or not it was actually the first, was at the forefront of a lot of these things and was for a lot of filmmakers a direct inspiration. Again, Blue Velvet, David Lynch's Blue Velvet directly inspired by Scorpio Rising. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in uh, film school, they actually had uh, a series of screenings at UCLA. uh, And I think that they were actually chosen by Martin Scorsese because he actually showed up at one of the screenings. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, there was uh, films that inspired Martin Scorsese, and this was one of them. Mm -hmm. And there was a very specific discussion about how his use of pop music in Mean Streets and everything afterwards. Everything since Mean Streets. It's directly influenced by seeing Scorpio Rising and realizing that pop music can be a useful artistic tool. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at something like Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. Uh, that's a very fetishistic movie. That is a very yeah, yeah. Uh, um, stylish to the point of, you know, erotica. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the scorpion on the back of Ryan Gosling's jacket that everyone loved and everyone wanted to buy, literally the same scorpion from Scorpio Rising. <laughs> literally, it's, it's he's the got the exact same, same scorpion. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Um, it, I find it a little bit curious because you look at uh, Drive and the, the the people that are behind it, it's like not just just the people who made it, but like the, the fans, like yeah. the cultists of Drive. Sure. Because when Drive came out, it had this huge push by people who were really, really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. It was making best of the year lists. Mm-hmm. Some people were calling it the best movie ever made. It's very, very stylish. It's, the soundtrack yeah. is incredible. I don't uh, think anyone can deny that. I, I think it, it has an element of camp, I think, that goes like largely unacknowledged by a lot of well, critics. It's so but... over the top in its artistry. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's artsy-fartsiness. You kind of almost can't help but laugh like, once like, in a while. Nicholas Winding Refn is clearly vanished far up his own ass. And uh, <laughs> not and, so much. Listen, in Drive, yes. Uh, in Only God Forgives, that's when he went completely he, over the he, deep he end. He went too far, and I think <laughs> so he far and I think he, he went really, really far with the Neon Demon. But that's a movie about uh, artificiality, yeah. so I think he unintentionally made it richer yeah. by by employing his own like up his own ass kind of style. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's kind of perfect for it's, it. Actually. It's it's really great movie, but not for the reasons Reffin intended, or at least not uh, as far as we can tell. Yeah. But, yeah. but what I was going to say about Drive is that uh, a lot of these cultists were 
straight guys. Mm-hmm. A lot of what uh, Scorpio Rising pushed forward in terms of rebellious queerness mm-hmm. was almost filtered out and it became style again. Yeah. And that's really disappointing. It's ironic and yeah. disappointing. It's, it's yeah. ironic and it's disappointing. But luckily, by the time we got to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the queerness could just be said out loud. Yeah. And Tim Curry and Barry Bostwick are making out on camera. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, now we can just... We can have all of this like iconography in something that's not an art film, but mm-hmm. this kind of raucous gay celebration well, of these sorts of things. And, and I feel like in a way, Rocky Horror is almost and, it, and again, it came out like like what like barely a decade after Scorpio it was 11 Rising. Eleven years after Scorpio Rising, so like barely a decade after Scorpio Rising. Hmm. Rocky Horror Picture Show features a sequence in which uh, Meatloaf appears as a biker dressed right out of Scorpio Rising, hmm. sing. Oh, kitty. He's eating he, a. F- he brought you a gift. He brought you a towel. <laughs> the cat. The cats are dogs around here. Like they bring treats. Sweetheart. That towel. <laughs> that towel. I had to. We made meatballs earlier and I had to use that as. Oh, and he's. As a. As a um, chewing up the meatball leavings yeah. on the towel. Okay. Pulled it out of the laundry. And and not only is he dressed right out of mm. Scorpio Rising, he's singing a song like Eddie's song mm. in Rocky a, Horror is very much a rockabilly. It's a fifties doo wop hit. Yeah, yeah. he's what, whatever happened to Saturday Night? He's literally breaking into the movie from Scorpio Rising, doing an awesome song, and everyone loves it. And what does Frankenfurter do? Pick Kills him. him. Yeah, <laughs> kills him right there. He's already stolen yeah. half of Scorpio Rising's brain, mm. so he's just he's taken half of that brain. He kills the rest of Scorpio Rising, and uh, he says, "And now we're doing my thing." <laughs> like, yep. We're just we're like, just putting like thank yeah, you. Think, we're moving on now. We're doing Richard, a new uh, thing. Richard O'Brien is he's sort of killing Scorpio Rising, but he's not trying to like deconstruct or destroy Scorpio Rising. He's sort of playfully like batting it back a little bit. Well, I mean, if Scorpio rising was trying to be sort of in your face, Mm. that's where Rocky Horror Picture Show is trying to do as well. And like by like killing someone like that and killing someone who represents like an Mm. earlier, uh, form of uh, popular culture Mm. that has similar themes to what Rocky Horror is doing. Rocky Horror is also being shocking. And it is also just saying, Nope, new era. Boom. Thank you. Mm. We're moving on now. Well, and, and I and have you, my own thing. Do you recall what uh, what Frank says right after he kills Meatloaf? It's, it's not easy having a good time. No, he, that's later in the movie. Okay. He, he, uh, he, he kills Meatloaf. There's a, a string of, of blood. Hundreds of people witnessed him doing it. He steps out with blood on his hands and says, <laughs> one from the vaults. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> forgot. That. Which is which is uh, a, a referring to the fact that it's, you know this film vault, but that's also something that was said in uh, um, uh, oldies radio mm-hmm. and like music ads. Also, Here, here's one from the vault. Also, Eddie was locked up in. Like, also, he was wall. literally wall, yeah, literally locked <laughs> up like in a vault. Three levels yeah. of that joke. Yeah, um, it's incredible. Mm. Um, so that is Scorpio Rising. Uh, Scorpio Rising is, I, you know, it's not like on like any streaming service officially, but it's pretty easy to find online. Mm. Uh, I highly recommend it. Again, this is, uh, this is, you know, R, this is R slash X rated, depending on how mm. you would define it. So um, obviously, yes. you know, decide your viewing uh, accordingly. Uh, but viewer, it's viewer discretion advice. Viewer discretion that, advice. Yeah. Thank you, and that that's a fair term. Mm. Uh, so you know, obviously, if you listen to our conversation, you know why. 
Uh, but it is an incredibly influential, incredibly significant uh, motion picture. And yeah. again, if again, if you've ever seen a movie in which a pop song appeared on the soundtrack and was used to tell the story, especially as an ironic counterpoint, but honestly, at all, you kind of probably have Scorpio Rising to thank for that. Yeah, for sure. And that is an incredible thing for any experimental film to say is that it is, maybe it wasn't the only one, but it helped completely change cinematic language. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a specific influence on Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror is a musical with its own songs, Mm. but that's just, that's incredible in and of itself. And then you can also draw the parallels and the lines to Rocky Horror. Mm -hmm. So. 100%. Anyway, that is Rocky Horror Episode Zero for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, really, really grateful to you. Uh, next week, we'll be back uh, with a movie that's very uh, uh, that's name-checked in Rocky Horror Picture Show, very specifically. And is influential not just to Rocky Horror, but to a lot of other films. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it's one of my favorite science fiction films. We're going to be talking <laughs> about the uh, absolute classic Forbidden Planet. Mm. Starring Anne Francis. Starring Anne Francis and, of course, Leslie Nielsen and mm. a couple other people as well. Well, Anne Francis is name-checked in yeah. Rocky Horror. So Anne that's, Francis does mm-hmm. Deep Throat, the sequel to Forbidden <laughs> Planet. Whitney's doing the talkback yeah, commentary, yeah. Um, which is part of Rocky Horror, obviously. But, uh, yeah, we'll talk about Forbidden Planet, which is the sci-fi rendition of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. And we're going to be giving that the full episode that it absolutely deserves. We talked about it, I think, recently on um, our Iron List, where we talked about the best Shakespeare adaptations. We talked about it for, like, five minutes. This movie deserves... All the time. A, a full it's such a great and important film. Uh, I love it. It's a classic for a variety of reasons. If you've never seen it, this is a great opportunity. I highly encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. And if you've seen it before, see it again. It's great. <laughs> um, so that's what's coming up next on Rocky Horror Episode Zero. Uh, if you haven't already, you know you can subscribe to the Critically Acclaimed Network and get a ton of these shows. You can also check out patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network where we have a ton of other exclusive shows including shows about the 1960s batman shows about star trek shows about what's not on disney plus but by all rights should be uh shows about the academy awards commentary tracks the whole shebang you get to vote for future episodes of things it's a lot Mm -hmm. uh so patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network thank you to all of our patrons without whom this show and all of the other shows that we do would not exist Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for that. And of course, you can write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net if you want to talk about uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Scorpio Rising, anything we discussed on this episode, anything at all, whether it has anything to do with anything, we might answer your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, what else we got? We got Twitter. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And, um... I, I, I see you shiver with Antissa. Way to sell it. Mm-hmm.